there can be what, and the lesson here is the, the idea here is that there is something that can happen at any point in your life that is so fundamentally definitive for you that you could almost look at it as if that is the point at which the life you're living now truly began. Where are the answers I see? Where are the hopes I need? Answer this for me. Help me to believe. Welcome back, Plain Ordinary Dragons. It's so good to have you back with us again. Unless, of course, this is your first time, in which case, welcome. We're so happy you're here with us today. As I'm fond of saying on almost each episode, time is the most precious resource we have. And the fact that you've chosen to spend some of yours with us is humbling. And we never take it for granted. So thank you. Today, I have a special treat for you. We're speaking with Eric Schulte. These days, he's in the security field of information technology. However, what he really is, is an information technologist extraordinaire, with security being his current focus. Now, don't run off thinking this is going to be a conversation of weird technology terms and words you've never heard of being used in sentences you can't begin to decipher. There is some tech talk, for sure, but it's minimal, especially for us. Now, I asked Eric to come on the show to talk about his journey because I've been privy to many real and amazing conversations with him in the past and now in the present and hopefully in the future. And I wanted to share some of that with you. One of the things people tell me about this podcast is how much they love the real, open, honest conversations. And this is one of those. Eric is also a listener and a supporter of this podcast, so it's nice to hear some about the way it has impacted him as well. Much in the same way that I identify as a jack-of-all-trades or as a renaissance man, so does Eric. He's on a journey of self-discovery, as we all are, but with intention, as some of us are. This is part one of a conversation you really don't want to miss. There is some explicit language, so be aware of that. But with so many thought-provoking ideas swirling around, I just can't wait any longer. So here is part one of a plain, ordinary conversation with Eric Schulte that is anything but. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Let's start at the beginning. Where are you originally from? Where were you born? Well, uh, first of all, actually, I wanted to I wanted to say thank you uh, sincerely for having me on the podcast. You know, I I didn't really know what to think when you started this whole thing, but I want to say that over time, I've really come to understand the value of what the Plain Ordinary Dragon podcast gives to to kind of us and yourself in the world, and I, I think it's really I think it's a really great thing. And I wanted to say thanks for thanks for keeping doing it, and thanks for having me on. You know. It's a pretty positive experience. For those that have never listened or that don't know, the Plain Ordinary Dragon podcast is a lot like staring at yourself naked in the mirror at 50 and thinking, oh, you know, that's not so bad. So I think there's a lot to be, uh, I think there's a lot of value uh, in something like this. So I just wanted to say, I think, uh, I think you've done a pretty cool thing here and I, and I appreciate it. 
Well, thanks, man. I, I, I do appreciate that. It, it has been um, an interesting journey for me as well, finding the other journeys along the way and trying to understand them better, understand myself better, really. It's kind of a, a journey of self-discovery as anything, but it's just a journey with no destination. And I think that's empowering in and of itself. It is. It is. I think so. I couldn't agree more. Speaking of journeys, mine uh, began in on the East Coast in a small state, in a small town of Providence, Rhode Island. I was born an East Coaster originally. After about three years, my parents got sick of that, and we ended up in rural America. So I was reared, if you may pardon the term, in a small farming community of about 2,000 people in the middle of a nowhere Iowa. I spent my teenage and high school years there. High school, predictably, was pretty terrible for me. So, Was it terrible because of awkward social interaction, or was it terrible because school just wasn't your thing? Or, <laughs> You know, it's really funny. Uh, <laughs> so many things are everybody else's fault when you're, when you're younger, and then so many things become your own fault by the time you get, those same things become your fault by the time you get old enough to realize what was going on. It it really is. I'll say this. I have, my memories of high school are just of being isolated and, you know, just in these maelstroms of of turmoil and, and torment. Uh, I, I felt abused by my peers and, and cast out. And I got an invitation to my 20th year high school reunion and I thought, man, I don't want to see these people. These I hated all these people. These people all hated me. But uh, my wife wanted to go, and she thought it would be good. She thought it would be cool. So we went. And I got to my 20 years high school reunion, and to my absolute amazement, nobody remembered that time in my life the same way I did. Everybody unilaterally kept coming up to me and saying, oh, man, it's been so long since we've seen you. We always thought you were so cool in high school. Everybody wanted to be your friend. You were such a funny guy. Everybody loved you. And I'm like, who in the hell are you people? And what high school do you think we attended together? (laughs) You hated me in high school. They're like, no, I thought you were the coolest, man. I always thought, I wish I could be you. I always looked up to you. This is the kind of thing, these are the kind of things that people were actually saying. These are the people that I would have five minutes before that said that they made a special point to make my life hell in high school. That's quite a difference of perspective. They saw it completely differently. Or now that I look back and realize I saw it completely differently. See, we create our own realities. And the terrible thing about that is that a lot of times we use the worst possible building blocks and the worst possible script writing to build those realities. We create these stories around ourselves that are actually quite a bit worse than what they are. And in some cases, we just completely go off in a direction that nobody even recognizes as as reality to them. So these people were just tickled to death to see me after 20 years, whereas I thought I'd, you know, 50 minutes after we got there, I wouldn't be able to wait to get out of there. It was a really amazing experience. It was actually kind of a, you talk about turning points. That was an interesting turning point in my life because it really taught me how powerful the stories that we tell ourselves really are. Oh, that's a, yeah, that's an amazing point because we spend a lot of time in our heads and a lot of times that's the most dangerous place any of us can ever be. And you don't realize it until one day you you see it for what it is and then you you got to confront that i that was a day where i had to confront something about myself 
Uh, and it was tough because I had never understood what a great liar I was. Uh, and it was, it was an incredibly, it was a really difficult experience for me to really confront how, how terrible I'd been to myself, you know, what the, how, how cruel I'd been to myself for so long. And that was a, that was a big day. Interestingly enough, came late in life, but it, it was a big day for me. Yeah. So when you say what a liar you are, you mean to yourself or in general, what can you expound? Well, <laughs> you know, you really, uh, I would love to be able to just say, yeah, I just, I just lie to myself. I mean, I don't lie to anybody else. Why, why would I do that? But unfortunately, you know, practice makes perfect as they say, and, and you don't get, you don't get fantastic at lying to yourself by not lying to anybody else. And you don't get fantastic at lying to anybody else without lying to yourself. So I'd have to say, if I'm honest, I was probably pretty good at it both ways. Gotcha. Um, and I don't mean, I don't mean lies of malice or, or misdirection. I just mean that, uh, and this really is going to get into a little bit later. What we, what we talked about, or what we've been talking about the past few times is that, is that those lies we tell other people. And, and I do think that the more we lie to ourselves, the more we're kind of drawn into lying to others about who we are. So in the end, nobody wins. You don't know what you're like. Nobody else knows what you're really like. And now you have to go find out. And then when you find out, you have to go through the amazing uphill battle of then reteaching everybody else around you who you really are and what you're really like. It is a stark difference. The, the people that we were as to the growth that we've had and the people that we are now. And to this point, uh, you know, your, your wife, uh, who's also a friend of mine, uh, she and I, um, actually, I don't, I don't think she liked me much at all when we first met. Uh, and <laughs> there's good reason for that because I was pretty arrogant and, and, um, so forth. I won't, I won't speak for her, but I, I, I can neither confirm nor deny the veracity of your statements. You can absolutely confirm it, but the fact that you won't is nice. The, uh, uh, but, you know, I think about that, especially the time that, that we kind of grew up in was very different than it is now. And I'm not speaking in terms of a pandemic and the crazy political environment that we're currently in here in the U.S., yeah. but it was a very different time than it is now when you kind of look back at yourself through the years and you, I kind of cringe. I'm like, Oh man, that that's kind of tough. I, and now we can reconnect with people because of the digital revolution, I guess we could call it because now we can connect with everybody virtually. Whereas, you know, for a lot of years, you couldn't do that. You know, I carried a little black address book that had names and addresses and phone numbers of people. And every Christmas I would sit down and I would call everybody in that black book just so that I could try to stay in touch with people that were around me. And a lot, I lost a, a lot of people, you know, because there was just no way really to track people. If somebody wanted to get lost and they could. And so I, I kind of say that to say this is that when I started reconnecting with people in the digital age, people that I hadn't talked to in 10 or 15 years, the perspective that they had of me was still that from when I was younger. And it was a little bit embarrassing really, because I had grown so much and people I've had a number of friends say, uh, you know, you're just not the same person that you were 
in college, in high school, and so forth, I like you much better now. And I'm like, well, I hope so, because I've done a lot of growing up in that time frame. Uh, but I think, I think that's a good point, is that we're very different now than we were then, and our perspectives always um, are, are changing, because we're always learning, getting new information. So the perspective that I had on myself at the time when I was in school and growing up is very vastly different than the perspective that I have now. Well, that's really interesting you should say that because that has become a huge theme for me lately and, and that being communication. You know, when before you and I met, my wife and I actually met on the internet. We met in 1992-ish, three-ish, back, back when the internet was not nearly what it is today. I don't know if anybody who's listening is going to even go that far back, but when I was first connecting to the internet, the process of even getting connected to the internet was to put a plug a modem into your phone. And it was probably about a 300 or 1200 baud modem, which meant you could actually watch characters appear on the screen as somebody typed them mm-hmm. one after another, after another. And it took about 15, 20 minutes because you had to dial in to a pool where, where a modem had to pick up. You could get busy signals for 10, 15 minutes. You could, wait and wait and wait and finally you would get a ring and then when you got a ring you had to quick do a whole bunch of manual things like setting your own ip address and and putting in the little modem commands atdt and make sure everything was set up it took about a good sometimes 30 45 minutes to just get connected to the internet from when you started trying to when you actually got an internet connection it could be anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes sometimes even an hour if the if the phone lines were really busy and of course if you had call waiting you'd get kicked off and had to whole start the whole process over again so it was not nearly the the internet that it is today back then it was just a, a pool of academics and, and geeks that just wanted to change information and exchange papers and and writings and knowledge and then students would get on these university networks and they'd have these nice social connections where people would just talk about what's it like in your country and what's going on in your part of the world and it was very academic and it was very cool there were some games that were played kind of text-based games and that's where my wife and i met and on the uh, muds in the mucks yeah absolutely remember those the multi-user dungeons you spent a little time on that too, did you not? Yeah, but Barb and I had reconnected uh, from college a little bit, uh, and I think it was mostly due to my not realizing that she wasn't a fan of hanging out with me. <laughs> um, uh, I would just ignorance is bliss. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so I would kind of show up at, at, at her place uh, with friends or whatnot, and she would show me. Uh, she she was the one that actually introduced me to Ancient Anguish, I believe it was, which was the, oh my god. Yeah, which I was the one about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, she had this whole story about how y'all had met there and so forth. And I thought, well, that, that's interesting. Of course, I, I think at that point I was more fascinated with the gameplay of itself, you know, you because it was all, like you said, text-based. There were no graphics. You just kind of, you know, uh, it was all, if you will, it was kind of like a... Like a Dungeons and Dragons sort of virtual experience. You walk into a room. This is what you see, and and you know you can do emotes and and there is a lot of things that that are on the internet interwebs today that came from that world. Those worlds. Now we just take for granted. What people don't understand is that, or what people don't remember is that the internet was at one point a Garden of Eden. 
it was a, an innocent, pure place full of the joy of discovery and the potential of meeting people just for the pure, pure pleasure of just talking to other peers, just having a peer group. It was a way for somebody who had no peer group and who had no, nobody that understood the way they viewed the world. It was a way to connect with all of those other people that were just like you. You could find them. You could go there and you could find peer groups and, and societies and communities where you could be you know, vindicated and stimulated. And, and I'm going somewhere with this. The internet and technology was a great thing, but in terms of communication, it has been really interesting to me to, to watch and understand that as time has gone on, the internet, rather than facilitating communication, has increasingly become the tool to pervert and inhibit communication. And when the internet was first started, the big thing was it's opening the gates and it's making everything world accessible. And now you can, you can have access to the whole world. You don't have to just listen to your local news. You can understand that, you know, they're actually not telling you the story. If you want to know what's going on in Zimbabwe, you can literally just find somebody in Zimbabwe and say, Hey, this is what the news told me was going on in your country. Is that right? And they would be like, Oh no, not at all. You're like, Whoa, it was, it was a way to really open your eyes to the truth of the world. But now increasingly, it has become the barrier to communication. It has become the way that people can get on and find ways to create new lines to draw between themselves and other groups. And it's become a way for people to, rather than reach out and collaborate, it's become a way for people to reach out and harm and people to reach out and, and to agitate and antagonize people. And so at this point, it's it's really strange for me to have watched the growth of the internet from this really cool, you know, classically, you know, beneficial to humanity thing, this, this great, this great enabler and this, this emancipator to have become this real incredible tool for creating barriers between people and for compartmentalizing people. Yeah. The, the, it has now become a tool for agendas. It is the most common uh, divisive tool. It's the most common tool for uh, furthering agendas, whether that be political, business, financial relationship. It, it has become a tool for that as opposed to what we knew it as initially, which was this amazing place to connect with other people. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. The change in the internet from what it was and how it began and this amazing thing like you said it, it was kind of an emancipation from you know just what we were told you know you, you couldn't fact check anything back in, in our day you know you just people would tell you things i mean i for years i thought that um one of my musical idols steve earl was from arkansas because that's what people told me and there was no real way to look up the difference you know it wasn't until years later that i found out that that wasn't true at all but for years i told people it was just like it was true uh, but <laughs> But, you know, I think now, you, I think you told me that. And to, and to this day, I've always believed it. I'm like, really? <laughs> like when you were saying that, I'm like, oh, shit, I didn't. Remember. I thought you told me he was from Arkansas. <laughs> I, I did. I did because <laughs> I, I was just completely lying out my ass because somebody yeah. else made that stuff up just to, you know, sound cool or they had heard it or something. You know, now you can. I mean. I'm not saying that the Internet's not a useful tool. I mean, it's allowing us to do what we're doing now. But you're 100% correct. I, I agree wholeheartedly that it has changed as now people view it as a tool for their own ends as opposed to something for exploration and connectivity.
Well, it goes that way, though, doesn't it? it? There are so many things that you can look at in human society and and say almost exactly the same thing about. You can say that about God. You can say that about the telephone. You, you can say that about uh, how that ruined the the thriving mail industry, how it killed the Pony Express, and how it ruined you know, the, the communication that they felt that they had back then, they changed it. Uh, and at first it was really great. And then suddenly now you had all of this commerce and business that started crisscrossing across the country and, and commercializing and industrializing everything. That was terrible. And then you could say, hell, you could go back to the cotton gin and say, I mean, the cotton gin was awesome because now suddenly you could get this high quality textile fabrics and you could mass produce all this stuff. But then, you know, 10 years later, you see these you know, 12, 13 year old children in these sweatshops, you know, creating a, creating <laughs> cheap clothing. And you're like, well, was that such a great idea? I don't know. It just moved the pain from it one just, place it naturally to happens. Location. Yeah. Yeah. It just, that's all it does is everything we've ever done that we've sought to benefit ourselves with has come in the form of some sort of refining or polishing or shortcutting the effort. So, I think maybe a great lesson for humanity is that anytime we try to replace effort with efficiency or speed, the motive that drives that process ultimately turns into something that people just capitalize on and, and turn against the consumers that it was meant to benefit, or at least in many cases, it's something to ponder. I'm not saying that I'm not asserting this as a blanket generalization or anything. I'm just kind of thinking as I talk. And then I just thought to myself, it's kind of funny how, how every time we seem to have tried to focus on saving ourselves effort, it's not ended up well. But the few times across our society's history where we've actually tried to focus on just bettering ourselves through enlightenment, through ad- academic, through education, you know, it's actually worked out fairly well. But of course, they feed each other. The processes feed each other. So I don't know. I'm probably circling the drain at this point, but that's how I think. <laughs> So uh, getting us back on track just slightly here, sure. high school was, was a challenge. Uh, we've talked previously about how you've, uh, you had an epic road trip once upon a time uh, going from, was it California to Maine and back and, and so forth? Oh, God, I did. Yeah. I was actually about two weeks after I left high school, man, I, I headed out of there. I mean, if you've ever grown up in a small farming community, you know that there's not really... You know, I think our gross national product as a as a high school class was probably teenage alcoholism and teenage pregnancy. So really, if you weren't interested in either of those uh, as a personal venue, you had to figure out something else pretty quick. Well, let me just so before, I before we the, go, go on this <laughs> epic road trip, let me just uh, we, we were talking about Iowa at, at this point. Um, I, I don't know if we said it. This we are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but. I've I've made a couple trips to Iowa, one with you, in fact. Oh, and, you have. That's right. <laughs> and there was, there. I I wanted to reiterate this because I found this to be one of my my favorite moments of being in Iowa. I had uh, this was not my trip with you, but a different trip. I had gone up there. I ended up in a bar with uh, with some people and and so forth, and we we were drinking as that'll happen right yeah anyway but one of the things that struck me as different in iowa as opposed to most of the south and east coast that i had uh, grew up in was that they have a lot of gravel roads and these gravel roads are kind of built up 
a, a good bit. And the ditches are really, really wide. Like, you know, in the South here, if you run into a ditch with your car, odds are pretty good. You're going to have to be towed out in Iowa. It's like they have runways down there where you could drive down and drive back up or whatever. And when I asked about this, uh, because you know, Amongst these gravel roads, what you have is, is, you know, corn as far as the eye can see or, you know, agriculture as far as the eye can see and then just this road. And I was asking about this at the bar. I was like, hey, why, why do you guys build this stuff this way? Why is your architecture this way? Why, is your, why are your roads this way? And the guy that I was hanging out with said, oh, that's simple because there's nothing to do up here except for, you know, farm corn and, and farm pigs. And so, you know, we pretty much just get drunk all the time. Everybody drives drunk around here. And, you know, if you're driving drunk, <laughs> you're going you're gonna to come off of the road, but you're going to need to get back up on the road. So we can't have these small ditches, you know, and I thought the guy was pulling my leg, but you know, for my, my week or so that I was there, I asked this question two or three times and everybody gave me the same answer. Oh yeah. Oh no, without a doubt. <laughs> and yeah. the funny part to the, the end of this particular story is when, when we got done at the bar, the guy that I had ridden there with, uh, was so drunk that he couldn't drive home and he handed me the keys and I'm like, dude, I've been drinking. How am I supposed to? They're like, don't worry. It's different up here. Just follow this guy. Well, that's the other thing they don't tell you is that you, they go 90 miles an hour on those dirt roads, even when they've been drinking. And it was, I, I didn't know where I was going. There was no GPS. This was pre-cell phone. I, you know, I'm here drunk. <laughs> trying to follow this guy to his house and all I'm following is dust because ain't no way I'm driving that fast uh, in this condition. It was just, it was a surreal experience uh, in Iowa. I guess it's just, it was a little different in that. <laughs> see, see, that's what we call in Iowa four lane road, right? Because when you're so drunk, you can't tell the difference between the two lanes that you're doing. You've got a whole extra lane that you can be in if you really needed to, or that the other person need to be into. If someone's coming down the road and they're in your lane, you're like, and I've done this. I swear to God, I have done this. I was driving down a road. I forget where the hell it was either in Missouri or Iowa. And the, the ditches are somewhat the same. Iowa obviously a lot deeper, but man, somebody came over into our lane they were probably drunk. And I just thought, well, hell, it's not like there's not this. And we just slid right down in the ditch. We're, we're still going about 75 miles an hour. Each party passes each other, me in the ditch, he in my lane. And then I just come back up onto the road from the ditch. And I'm like, well, it's another day in Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> Something else. Okay. So, uh, so then you, you decided to go on an epic road trip. There I was on an epic road trip. Yeah. We, uh, I left Iowa. It goes pretty quick from there to, uh, to the start of that. Uh, I got out of the States. I, I bopped around a little bit. I went back to the East Coast and spent some time with my grandparents, uh, which was good. Uh, lived in a little coastal village off the coast of Maine for a little bit. Interesting time there. Spent a year there being a, a mason tender in the winter. And in the summers, I worked on a, a touring boat that went about eh, 10 miles out into the Atlantic Ocean to a little artist colony. We carried supplies and people and medicine, things like that to those folks. And then I found myself at my uncle's wedding, and he was in California at the time. So I took a flight from pretty much Providence, Rhode Island, all the way to California. And I got to California. I thought, well, this is actually pretty cool. So I ended up staying there, and it's been about two years in California. And at about that time, I must have been around 22. And I thought, well, 
I guess I kind of need to start getting my head out of my ass and figure out what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Now, in California, you were building boats, weren't you? I was. uh, I actually was a a trained shipbuilder, uh, welder, steel steel iron worker, a local 627. I can't believe I still remember my shop. And (laughs) I was out there as a steel worker, uh, working in the steel yards, building ships, typically contract ships for the Navy. But it it was a big facility, and it was hard work. And I don't know, you... (laughs) <laughs> you don't want to do that kind of stuff for, for a long time. Cause you look at the fellows that have been doing it for a while and you know, they're still, they're still counting their fingers with whatever fingers they have left. And that's just kind of depressing at the end of the day. <laughs> but uh, I thought, let's, let's get the hell out of here. Let's, let's go do something. Let's be a, let's go to college. Let's make something of myself. And my dad was, Oh, great. I mean, he was overjoyed. I'd spent probably about four years doing absolutely nothing. And he was, he said, man, yes, you know, get your shit pack, come out together uh, or, you know, get your, get your stuff together. Uh, I'll send you some funds and, and I'll send you one of my credit cards for emergencies if you need to. And you can just, you can just, you know, get your stuff together and come on out here. So I, there I was uh, at the time, uh, actually I wasn't working in the steel yards anymore. I was working at a Cal stores warehouse doing returns for sneakers. And I worked with a lot of folks from the Southern communities and, and one of my best pals there, uh, was a French Mexican. His, I think his mom was French and his dad was Mexican. And he was, he was a good old boy. And he's like, uh, he was interested in this whole idea that I was about to hit the road and just, you know, throw, throw everything to the winds and, and head out. And he wanted a piece of that. And I said, well, you know, I mean, if you're heading the same way, sure, we can carpool for a little while and I can drop you off wherever you want to go. I think he was going to go back to uh, France at some point, but he just wanted to do the road thing. So I, I threw everything I owned, my dog, and my Mexican friend, my French Mexican friend in the, in the truck, and we hit the road. Now, what this guy didn't tell me is that in his duffel bag of, of various items, he had about, God, he had about two or three pounds of the thickest, weediest, stinkiest marijuana I had <laughs> ever in my life encountered. Now, I wasn't a smoker at the time. I didn't, I didn't really, you know, I wasn't really into that culture, but my God. He was starts puffing on that thing. I'm surprised I remember half that road trip at all. But it started in California. We went all the way across the state. We went through Iowa. My family at that time just happened to be in Maine for you know vacation, visiting the other side of the family. So I thought, well, let's just continue through Iowa and let's meet up with them in Maine. And so we just kept on going north. Uh, we made the choice to go up through Canada. You know, we went up all the way through a few Canadian uh, states, had some interesting times there. I almost got into a fight in a Canadian bar, which I understand is kind of hard to do because Canadians are so polite. But believe me, everybody's got a line, and Americans can push anybody across it. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's no, no shortage of proof to that end. Yeah, so we, uh, we, had, a, we had a pretty good time in Canada. A little couple bumps and bruises, but then we finally made it through uh, Niagara Falls. We came back into the States through Niagara Falls, and we ended up in Maine, and we spent some time in Maine. And then from there, uh, I think Olavo took a plane to France from there. And I took a, uh, and then of course I drove back to Iowa with my folks. And, and at the time, <laughs> my dad hadn't gotten the credit card bill yet. And the, the credit card that he had given me for emergencies, I mean, there's a lot of things that you can call an emergency. Everything from, you know, uh, trying to buy an escort in Las Vegas to, 
you know, emptying out a trinket shop in a Niagara Falls <laughs> tourist area. There's, there's a lot that we constituted an emergency throughout that problem. And I, I had to work through some things with my dad once that I'll, I think I put about $10,000 on his credit card. When oh my goodness. Done. <laughs> yeah. Those, those were kind of the words he used uh, <laughs> with some ad living thrown in there. And he, uh, and so I will say it was a, it was an interesting experience and it was a great experience. And, you know, I'll never forget some of that things, some of those things that happened, but at the same time, uh, I was really lucky to have a parent that, that didn't kill me at the end of that. And, mm -hmm. uh, who was able to pay off the exclusive debt load that I'd put on his shoulders through all that. <laughs> I guess. So he, he remembers it to this day. Oh, yeah. I'll bet he doesn't forget that. I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was one of my most famous road trips. Uh, it lives, it lives in infinity. His mind too, believe me. <laughs> Probably for different reasons. But yeah, that was that was yes. pretty interesting. <laughs> in years, so you got back to Iowa. Yeah, so, so what's what's what's? Go ahead. We did. And then actually, and I, I wanted to clarify something because I, I I said something earlier, and I want I want to go back and clarify. <laughs> I mean, the thing about the thing about Las Vegas, right? So there's a couple weird things that happened to us in Las Vegas. First of all, we were. I mean, we had gotten about as drunk as drunk could be. And Olavo has this idea, hey, we're in Las Vegas. Everything's, you know, on the table. Let's, you know, let's call and, and let's call and get an escort. And there are just pamphlets. I mean, if you've ever gone to Las Vegas, there are just pamphlets and and business cards and shit just strewn everywhere. Like they're in bus stops where you can just pick up pamphlets where they're like, Hey, do you want a prostitute? It's cool. It's Vegas. Just call this number. We'll send over some prostitutes. It's like, whatever. <laughs> well, I was just completely enchanted with this. You're right. Uh, if you have been to Vegas and I think you're airing a little bit on the conservative side, when you say pamphlets, they have free magazines at every bus stop, yeah. every location. Yeah. You can just pick up the magazines and, and thumb through all of the different people that are providing escort services and more uh and and they're all well, over. i mean you can go to a dunkin you you can go to a you can go to a dunkin donuts and they'll be like yeah i'll have like a medium uh coffee uh mountain blend uh jelly filled uh oh and uh crystal looks good send her <laughs> send her over i mean it's practically on the menu at places like that so Indeed. But he was just he was just fascinated by this. It wasn't even the sexual thing. He was just fascinated by the fact that in America you could just go someplace and then there are all these, you know, ads for this. So we said, okay, let's you know what the hell let's do this. So we call this number and the, and the and these people and we 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 do the deal and and we're just sitting in this hotel room drinking. And I actually passed out. One of the few times I've actually been so drunk I passed out. I pass out. I don't remember, I don't even know what the hell happened. I wake up the next morning. Alavo is sprawled across the bed, thankfully with some clothes on. The door is open to the hotel room. Nothing that I can tell has been like gone or stolen, but there's nobody there. And my dog is gone because we had a dog at the time uh, and we were just kind of taking him with us to road trip. We had snuck him into the hotel room. So I wake up hung over as hell, wondering what in the hell happened. And my dog's gone. And I'm like, what in the hell are we going to do? Now I've got this damn dog that's running around Las Vegas. I've got ostensibly this hooker that I paid for that I have no idea where she is or what happened. And it's just a mess. We, so we're, we're walking around, we're looking everywhere for this goddamn dog. And we, and we finally, I hear barking and we're like, what in the hell is that barking? And we've been wandering around the hotel, you know, grounds for a while. Somebody had locked this dog in the pool house. 
I have no idea who did it or why they would have put the damn dog in the pool house. Why would they have just thought, hey, there's a random dog running around. I'll just stick it in the, in the hotel pool house. We liberated the dog. We got in the truck. We got all of our shit together. Olavo smoked a giant, giant joint in the truck while I was trying to figure out the map. Because back in then, those, those days, you, you didn't have Google. You had something called Thomas Brothers. And even that wasn't really great. You had to get, get it for the state you were in. But we're trying to figure our way out of there. And it was just one of the weirdest mornings I think I've ever had. Just completely secondhand stoned, still half drunk. This weird gypsy dog in the, in the back just chilling out, wondering what in the hell happened that night. And that was kind of my experience in Las Vegas. So if you, if you go, just, just know that that's, that's kind of par, par for the course uh, in Las Vegas. <laughs> you can have whatever experience you want to have in Las Vegas. At least that's been my experience. You really have. Now, just repeat that same level of story for just about every state we went through, and that was pretty much my road trip. I, I say that to just kind of level set that that's, that's basically how the road trip went. Just I, I don't even know what the hell happened in every state we went through and how it happened, but that's, that was a... Dad got his money's worth. Let me put it that way. <laughs> or you, you got his money's worth. One of the two. <laughs> All yeah, right. I, I got dad's money's worth. Um, anyway. <laughs> At least you got value out of it. Yeah, that's that was it. That was it. Uh, you know, that's funny because I, I would have said, sure, ostensibly things like that are always horizon stretching and, and things like that. I'm not really sure what I learned from that experience, if anything. Uh, so I guess I say that not to not to have really just wandered all over the map, but I, I guess I say that to more illustrate that I had a very open young part of my life. I was not by any means. I want to give the impression that I wasn't, I didn't come from a strict family. I wasn't really, I was kind of let run wild uh, as a kid, which may, may or may not have been the right thing, but I didn't have a lot of boundaries as a kid. I didn't have a lot of, didn't have a lot of discipline, didn't have a lot of rules and regs. And my parents were pretty focused on their own shit which they had quite a bit of it going on and i i understand that so i didn't really get the lion's share uh the attention for quite a quite a chunk of my high school life which is why i kind of became that kid that just sort of roamed around and did whatever he wanted however he wanted and that was unfortunately a lesson that i learned and that was a bad lesson uh you don't really want to learn the lesson that you you can feel free to just kind of do whatever you want and go wherever you want to a point I think it's a good philosophy to have as you're older and you realize what the consequences of that are. But when you're young and you have that viewpoint, you have no concept of what the consequences of those things are. Um, yeah, the gravity. It took me kind of a while to learn too. The gravity of, yeah. of consequences for your actions uh, is a tough one to learn at a young age because a lot of times we're sheltered from those things and we don't realize the consequences that can actually happen until much later in life. I think the brain pretty much, you know, finishes its development around 25, 26 years of age. And by that time, at least in the U.S. society, uh, you know, we've made a lot of decisions that affect our entire lives without understanding the consequences behind all those decisions. You know, when we throw kids out at 18 and say, okay, choose what you're going to do for the rest of your life. And they still have seven years left or more of their brain still developing. I think it's kind of a bit of a disservice. You know, what really gets me about that though, is that, and this is actually something that has come to me through the conversations that you and I have had uh, over time is that I realized something fairly recently. Most people are comfortable with the conventional understanding that life begins when they're born and that 
they go through their growth experiences and, and then you get to the end of your life and it creates this fixation on what your age is. It's important to note for whatever reason, when you're 18 and then you're an adult and then you become 30 and you're like, holy shit, I'm 30. And then you become 40 and you're like, holy shit, I'm 40. And there's this fixation that we have in our society on age. And I realized something in, ter- in very real terms to me, in very real terms to me, my life didn't actually begin until I was about 23 when I met my wife. There can be what, and the lesson here is the, the idea here is that there is something that can happen at any point in your life that is so fundamentally definitive for you that you could almost look at it as if that is the point at which the life you're living now truly began. And I don't mean to downplay or de-emphasize all the life lessons I learned up until that point, but I can say with absolute clarity that the life I'm living right now literally began at about age 24, 25. Now I'm 50 right now. And what the interesting impact of that is that I consider myself the person I am today. I consider that person basically having been born about 25 years ago, which to me mentally leaves me with the feeling that I'm about 25 years old. Or, you know, if you, if you extrapolate that a little bit, maybe like in my early 30s. So mentally, interestingly enough, I feel like developmentally, I've only really been doing the things that define who I am for about the last 25, 27, 28, you know, 30 years. So uh, actually, Barb and I have been together for 27 years. So I would say, yeah, about 30 years, you know. So interestingly enough, what that leaves me with is the feeling that I'm really only about 30 because I feel like my life began and, and you know, at about 30 years ago. That's an interesting perspective. And that, that is something that has had a profound impact. It is. And that is something that has had a profound impact on me. And one of the things that has really come of it is that I feel like we were talking about the internet earlier and how it became this, you know, how you went from calling people in your little black book to now you can just get on the internet and, and then it was a cool thing. But nowadays you've got all this web traffic and things are on there. You've got social media and social marketing. You've got Facebook where you can just kind of Facebook is kind of a way where everybody just gets put in this giant like Macy's department store plate glass frontage window where everybody in the street can just walk by and just stare into the stare into the little glass box and see what it is you're doing and who it is you are these days and and how things are going around you. And at first I thought it was kind of cool, but I became less and less fond of that idea as time goes on. And now I'm becoming full circle. So me personally, I don't know if a lot of people feel this way, but I kind of think a lot of people do. I'm actually coming full circle and I'm finding that the internet is now that barrier to communicating with the people. And unbelievably, Elliot, I am actually starting to revert back to that method of communication where you were talking about where now I'm just kind of keeping a list of the people that are really important to me in my life and the people that I really want to maintain communication with. And I am just trying to develop this pattern where about every month or so, I just reach out to them. I just call them. It's, I don't, nothing fancy. I don't message them. I don't text them. I say, Hey, can we get on a phone call? Can we talk for 30, 45 minutes? And I just connect with those people that way, because I found that trying to connect with people any other way has really lost about all the meaning that I really wanted to put into relationships. That's now, really, it also means, sorry, go ahead. No, I said, I was just going to say that that's really understandable because there's, um, there's a real frustration to what we see in social media these days. Anyway, go ahead. Continue on. 
Well, and, and so what I find is that's the way that I'm starting to put meaning back into my relationships. And what it's also taught me is that relationships are a lot harder than anybody gives them credit for because I was an outgoing personality. And what an outgoing personality does is they create a lot of connections with a lot of people and they feel like that's quality. They feel like that's content because look at all these friends I have, look at all these people I do. And so what you do is you create this persona that can literally plug into anything. You create kind of this this sort of vendor agnostic, if I can use a term from our, from our jobs, <laughs> uh, you create this vendor agnostic platform that can kind of connect with anything, anywhere, anyhow. And, you know, you really don't like the idea. You try to avoid the idea of not being connected to anybody. You want to be connected to everybody. That's, that's sort of the outgoing personality. If you're familiar with the Myers-Briggs ENFP, uh, that's, that's what we do. And now what I've realized is that so what you would say about me uh, what what most people would have said about me up to this point is that it's effortless for Eric to interact with people. It's effortless for Eric to have friends and go to parties and and plug in everybody and just be the guy in the in the middle of the room that can just talk to anybody or do anything. And they're right. It is effortless for me to interact with people, or at least it has been up to now. Some people find it very difficult to interact with people. Some people are very introverted, and it takes them a long time to make connections with people. But for me, boom, it's effortless. But here's the other side of that truth. It also means that I put no effort into interacting with people, that up to this point, I have put no effort. It is effortless, not only because it doesn't require much effort from me to interact with people, but at the exact same time, it means that I put no effort into that interaction with people. And so now as I've changed that and I've realized that, okay, I want to start putting effort into these relationships. I want to start having meaningful conversations again, like we used to when, when the internet was kind of first new, I realized that that takes an enormous amount of personal energy. And so now I'm finding that I have to figure out how to, how to pick the few people that I can really put that, that I can really spread that finite amount of energy into because it's effortless for someone like me to have a hundred friends. It is an enormous amount of energy for me to have five. <laughs> so <laughs> making that transition, you know, and, and getting all that value that I really want out of, out of my life and out of my friends and out of my relationships and loved ones, that has been a big growth experience. That's been a big uphill battle for me. Uh, Cause at first I just wanted to turn around and, and give everybody that, that kind of energy. But then I realized there's just no way it's not sustainable. And, and I understand now why people adults sometimes say it's better to have, you know, a few really good close friends than just a million, you know, contacts. Not that that's, you know, that's good to have in a, in a business sense, in a commercial sense, but man, I get it because people, I think really deep down, they yearn for that, for that unique, intimate, meaningful relationship context. And even if you get it, even if you have it, it's going to cost you so much that there's no way you can possibly do that for any more than about a handful of people. Real conversations and real relationships take real work. Yeah, it's exhausting. Oh my God. Do you find that? So have you found that to be true as you've, as you've gotten older? Have you, we've talked an awful lot about the path I've walked, but I'm also equally curious as to, as to some of what you've experienced in that. What, what of what I said kind of resonated with you? Well, I, I think there's a lot of, a lot of truth in, in that perspective. Uh, I think that 
you know, my experience growing up was very different than your experience, obviously. And, and as it is for everyone, even, you know, I have, there's five kids in my family, right? I'm the oldest of five. And if I were to sit down with each of my brothers and sisters, their experience, even growing up in the same household I did, is very different than my experience was growing up in that household. However, that being yeah. said, I grew up in a household where that is how you interacted with people was on a deep level. And so uh, it has been both a bonus and a minus in my life to some degree, because it's hard for me to have superficial engagements with people. Um, you know, I grew up in, in a household where we discussed uh, philosophy politics, relationships, religion, ad nauseum. And we did it from the time I was really young. Like people, I remember the Reagan and, and Carter election, and I remember the run up to it. Wow. Um, okay. Now I'm younger than you, but that was a topic of conversation in my household because I remember it was when my mother told me this will be the first time that we haven't voted Democrat in our life. Now, that all being said, I grew up with that, which is why I have a tendency to go into relationships, both platonic and romantic, uh, and go as deep as possible, as quick as possible, not because I'm trying to intrude, but because I've always had this thing where I want to know who the people really, really are. You and I have talked about this in the past. Some, um, you know, you and I yeah. spent some time working together in the same businesses. In fact, during that time frame, there were some back and forth between you and I, where I was like, Hey, can, can we get past this superficial bullshit and get into a real conversation here? Because this small, talk is killing me because I'm trying to get to something real here and we're not connecting that way. So can, is there a way, what do I need to do to try to change this conversation so that we can really get to the core of whatever's going on? Because I find that that's Interesting. where we, that's where connections really had. It, it's not in the superficial piece. It's in, it's in, do I really know you? Do you really know me? Do we have a mutual respect and understanding of each other, even if we have differing opinions? And maybe that's okay. Uh, or maybe it's not, but we won't know if we don't really find out what's posturing and what's real. And I think that's one of the frustrations that we see in, in today's political environment as well with the stark division and polarization is that we fail to get to know people themselves and we work really hard to deal with a bunch of superficial things and that's a frustration because nobody can get to the realness to the connection to the peace that really is what humans our human society is about it's about connection whether you're an introvert or an extrovert we all need connection in some way shape or form you know the the way that an introvert yeah connects is different than the way an extrovert connects, but it doesn't mean the introvert doesn't need a connection because they do. It's just the way they connect is different than the way that say, you know, an outgoing personality connects. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think, I think so too. We boil it all down. It comes down to connection. And that's what we crave is connection. We crave to be understood. We crave to, un to be, to understand. Unfortunately, the way that our society has, 
I guess, grown uh, and basing ourselves around a capitalistic uh, environment. And again, I worked for corporations my entire life, mostly Fortune 500 corporations. I'm not in any way, shape or form in this conversation bashing them. But what I am saying is, is that because we build things on a superficial level in regards, because money is just a story we've all told ourselves. It's not, we existed for a lot of years before a monetary system came into play. And uh, really, mm. we've only been doing that for a few hundred years, all things considered. And so it's not something that we, we have to have, but it is a way that we have chosen to say these are the markers in the game of winning or losing. And I think that's detrimental to some degree because that's all superficial. You know, the money doesn't really mean anything. The ability of the money to say, to, to allow someone to have food so that they don't die. That's important. Those are the, you know, where are the real pieces? And so I guess I'm going to try to reel this back in because I have bird walked quite a bit on this, but I think for me, a lot of the, the connectivity piece resonates with me. I, because I have been doing in-depth conversations like this my entire life, it both exhausts and invigorates me at the same time because I learn and find all these amazing things about people that I either knew or sometimes that I didn't know. And I'm able to adjust my perspective and understand new things about this world. And I don't find anything more exciting than learning new things and, and finding out new information, uh, especially on a level uh, that is or could be considered important in my life. Yeah, I like that. And what I find most gratifying about this conversation is that looking back over the time you and I have known each other, this feels finally tremendously like we've come full circle. This conversation feels a lot like the very first conversation you and I ever had when we met. He didn't disappoint. Some really great things in this episode... I love how he was able to understand the power of the stories we tell ourselves and how it prompted him to go on a journey of self-discovery. Isn't it amazing how we can choose to change our lives and perspectives when we see them with a fresh set of eyes, sometimes through other people's experiences? There are so many takeaways from what he said in this conversation, and it's just part one especially when looking inward and coming to grips with who you are and who you aspire to be, the person you choose to be, the person that you want to be. Make sure you check out part two next week. Just a quick bit of housekeeping. Please sign up for the, ordinary, the Plain Ordinary newsletter if you want to keep in touch with us. You can do that by going to the website, uh, https colon forward slash forward slash plainordinarydragon.com forward slash subscribe. As you hear me say almost every week, you might be plain, and you might be ordinary, but you're a dragon, and you can do amazing things, and we can't wait to hear your voice in this world that so badly needs it. Mm-hmm.